Hey everybody, it's uh, Dr. Lyle Bergoon. Welcome to the Critical Science Podcast. This is episode number 14. Number 14. So uh, last week I was in Washington, D.C. I uh, sit on a group uh, called the um, Children's Health Protection Advisory Committee. We're in the U.S. EPA Advisory Committee and I'm a brand new member there. I uh, represent uh, industry and small business interests. And, um, you know, it was really nice uh, being there, getting to uh, meet all the other members of the panel. And uh, we got a lot of great presentations on all kinds of things, uh, everything from, you know, children's health things, obviously. Uh, Environmental justice. uh, We got a lot of uh, um, information on some of the emergency response uh, type work that EPA is doing that uh, impacts children's health. And it was a really good time. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad I was able to be part of it. I'll be on there for the next three years. So I'm really excited about that. Um, And, you know, when I was in uh, D.C., I was able to catch up with uh, some uh, folks talking about various things. And one of the questions I got from um, somebody that I know up in D.C. was about uh, East Palestine, Ohio. And, um, you know, there was um, I think it was back in April. Yeah, it's back in April. Here it is. I got just pulled up on my screen now. Back in April, there's been some residents who've been getting um, urine tests and blood tests uh, performed, um, and they're 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 seeing some biomarkers um, that are typically associated with vinyl chloride. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this. I wanted to talk about um, biomarkers, uh, kind of in general, but with, with with a particular emphasis or focus on what's going on in East Palestine, Ohio, in particular. Um, I, I get the opportunity to uh, opine, to talk about, to think about um, these kinds of issues a lot in my uh, day job. Um, a lot of what I've been doing lately is um, helping people understand what their biomarker tests that their doctors might be ordering, what they might mean, um, or that they might uh, have by court order, or that uh, the police may have ordered them to take. Uh, for various reasons. So, for instance, somebody uh, uh, may be arrested for suspicion of uh, DWI or DUI, driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated. And it's not uncommon in many states then for that individual to uh, uh, have a blood test run to get you know confirmation on the fact that they had alcohol or they had some other uh, controlled substance or some kind of psychoactive substance in their blood that you know, may, um, may be the cause of, uh, you know, whatever erratic type driving or whatever is going on that caused the uh, police officer to be suspicious of their driving. Um, I, I get a lot of questions about that. Uh, you know, and, and so in family law as well, there's questions about some of the different ways that you might be able to measure alcohol, for instance. Um, you know, cause alcohol itself, ethanol, the stuff, you know, that uh, are in drinks, alcoholic adult beverages, if you will, uh, you know, it, the alcohol itself doesn't stick around for very long. So, um, in family law cases, if you're trying to, you know, say that, uh, somebody was drinking when they had possession of the minor child, for instance, or somebody was drinking when they were, uh, engaged in some kind of, um, um, you know, uh, spousal abuse, something like that, the alcohol may already be gone by the time, uh, they get around to doing a test, so they may rely upon biomarkers uh, to establish different uh, different things like how much alcohol did they have in their system, 
how long ago was it? You know, things like that. So there, there's all these different biomarkers. The thing that's important to understand about biomarkers is probably, well, I should probably back up and explain what a biomarker is. That'd probably be the most important thing to do. So let's back up a little bit. Okay. So a biomarker, what's a biomarker? So like, you know, you might be tested you might get a blood test run at your uh, annual physical. If you get one of those and you know, they'll draw some blood and they'll measure a bunch of things in your body. Um, and, and we call these things biomarkers and what they are is they are a marker of something going on biologically in your body. That's essentially it. That that's it in a nutshell. So some of you may be familiar with, um, this is pretty common, um, glucose in your urine. Um, especially if you're diabetic, uh, you might do the dipstick test with the urine. So you go pee in the cup, they get a dipstick, they dip the dipstick in and they're just looking for, is there any glucose in your urine that's detectable with the dipstick? And generally if there is, then they may ask you to perform additional tests um, it's kind of like a screening test for, for diabetes is, is probably the easiest way to think of that. So they're, they're just trying to see, are, are you a potential diabetic or not? And it's a really easy test. You don't have to get poked because they're just using your pee, right? So that's, that's easy. Uh, a lot of people don't like getting poked. Um, as a matter of fact, if, if you have to take a drug where you have to get poked, you know, with a needle in order to administer the drug, um, we, in pharmacology, we, we talk about compliance issues, getting someone to actually do that on a routine basis is really hard. And so we know that, for, and, you know, drug companies know this. And so they will always try to develop a drug, uh, such that it can be taken as a pill because compliance issues, there, getting patients to comply with taking an oral medication, like a, like a, a tablet is much easier than getting a patient to comply with injecting them themselves with something. I know we had a cat who was diabetic and we treated him with insulin. We had to give him two shots a day. And, um, I'm always amazed. Um, he, he was just an amazing cat. He, he, he was totally cool with, with us, um, injecting him with insulin twice a day for, uh, several years. Um, which is just amazing. I don't know that I, if I had to get injected with insulin twice a day, I, yeah, I might get used to it after a few years, but man, those first several go arounds, I don't think I'd be too chill with it. And he was, he was amazing. I mean, he's just an amazing cat in general, but he, he was totally cool with it. In fact, we would do blood draws with, uh, you know, at the, at the vet's office, um, to see how, uh, you know, different things were going. And he never put up a struggle. He never put up a fight with the vet. He just kind of lay there like, okay, take my blood. Sure. Yeah, this is cool. Uh, he was an amazing cat. Anyway, back to biomarkers. Um, sorry for that digression there. So biomarkers are going to be, you know, you, you can think of them as uh, sometimes they are things that our body produces. Sometimes they are metabolites. Um, generally, if it's the parent chemical, you know, you could call it a biomarker if we detect it in blood or urine or someplace. Um not always do we call it a biomarker, but sometimes we do that just to lump everything together. It's just one of those weird semantic things. But anyway, so let's let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about. Uh, I, I I chuckle because I, I get this so much. And if there was one thing I wish people would understand about biomarkers, it's that um, this is really tough. So 
I might get a call. In fact, I got a call recently from an attorney and he's like, Hey, can you look at these lab reports uh, from these individuals and let me know if you think they may have been intoxicated. And so it's not uncommon for me to look at these lab reports, you know, and the lab reports will have the parent compound and some metabolites. And, you know, sometimes we're a, you know, sometimes I'm able to back calculate what kind of dose this person had uh, prior to death or prior to uh, an action or at the time that they committed an action, something like that. Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes it's impossible to do. And it all hinges on what do we know about how this biomarker is produced. So in a lot of my investigations that I do, I need to, I need to understand how did this biomarker get produced? It's not good enough to say that we can measure it. it I need to know how it got produced. And in some cases, especially with these alcohol cases, there are biomarkers that are not as reliable as others. So for instance, I had a case recently where we were looking at uh, phosphatidyl ethanol. It's a biomarker of uh, ethanol or alcohol um, ingestion. And, you know, it's kind of neat. We know how it's produced. It's very specific to ethanol, which is good. That's one of the key things you want with a biomarker is that it's very specific for this parent compound. Uh, because if multiple chemicals can create this biomarker, then it becomes less diagnostically useful. It becomes less useful for me to be able to say, mm, this biomarker is associated with, you know, with this and, and to then back calculate uh, what kind of uh, levels of, let's say, ethanol they had. Um, if I'm using a biomarker that is uh, produced by multiple different chemicals, I can't do that anymore because I need to know what the levels of all those other chemicals are, and it just becomes really complicated. So PETH, phosphatidylethanol, it's very, very specific to alcohol ingestion, so that's cool. Um, the problem with PETH, though, is that PETH has a really, 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 really long half-life. So if you're dealing with a case where you have an individual Let's say um, they are allowed to uh, have visitation rights uh, with their minor child, uh, but the stipulation is that they may not drink while they have possession of the minor child. Okay. Peth is a horrible biomarker for assessing whether or not this person drank. And the reason why it's a horrible biomarker is because of this long half-life. Because of this long half-life, you know, there, there are, there are, Papers out there where they say, oh, well, you know, if the PETH level is between here and here, then they're a moderate drinker or they're a heavy drinker or they're this, they're that. And it's not that simple. And, you know, I'm working on a paper to dispel some of these myths about PETH. Um, but if you're, if you're dealing with a family law case and, you know, they're trying to use PETH to say that you were drinking while you had a minor child, that's not the right test to use. There are better tests. Uh, ETG test, you know, ETG uh, has a much shorter half-life. It's going to tend to be a better test for that particular purpose. There are other things you could do, though, uh, but just don't use PETH. PETH. PETH is really good for the situations where you have to have 100% abstinence. In other words, you can never drink. Your job requires that you are never allowed to drink ever, even when you're off duty. Then PETH is probably, you know, a reasonable biomarker to use. Okay. 
So let's go to um, this vinyl chloride situation in East Palestine, Ohio. So there are some people who have gotten their blood work done. They've gotten their urine tests and they are stating that, well, my, my urine test says that I have a breakdown product of vinyl chloride in my urine. And these individuals rightfully so want to be able to connect that vinyl chloride exposure back to the train derailment. Now, as as a toxic as a toxicologist and as an investigator, what I then would do is I would start asking, you know, the very, you know, just doing the simple critical thinking things, which is, okay, well, what breakdown product are we talking about? Most of the breakdown products of vinyl chloride are not specific to vinyl chloride. It's true. Many, well, not many, I think almost all of the breakdown products of vinyl chloride can actually be produced by other chemicals breaking down in your body. So your body will produce these metabolites that are not specific to vinyl chloride. So just because you ha- you have a breakdown product that is that is associated with vinyl chloride doesn't mean that it came from vinyl chloride. Number one. All right. Now, let's let's imagine that wasn't the case. Let's pretend that you had a biomarker that was extremely specific to vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride is the only source of it, which is not the case, but let's let's pretend that it were the case. So let's pretend that you had a metabolite that was only created by vinyl chloride. Well, the next question that I would then ask is, okay, so if this were only specific to vinyl chloride, then the next thing I need to know is, what are all the sources of vinyl chloride? And guess what? Combustion. And when I say combustion, the easiest way to, you know, break down combustion in, into, uh, uh, you know, terms that everyone can understand is burning stuff. So if you're burning anything, there's a very high likelihood that we could have vinyl chloride. So what are some common things that we burn? Um, a lot of people uh, burn cigarettes. Now, we don't call it burning cigarettes, right? That's not how we say it in our language. We would say that they're smoking. Um, a lot of people smoke cigars. If you are burning plastic, that's a great source of vinyl chloride. If you're uh, burning, uh, you know, if you had a picnic and you're burning the stuff that you took on the picnic, which I see a lot, you really shouldn't do that, by the way. You really, really, really should not burn uh, plastic wear and stuff like that. But I see people do it all the time. If you're burning that stuff, guess what? Vinyl chloride. So there's a lot of sources for vinyl chloride. Oh, um, the CDC also mentions that um, they've, they've noticed leaching of vinyl chloride from certain plastic products. So, uh, you know, plastic uh, cooking ware, plastic bottles, uh, things like that. You could also have vinyl chloride. If you work in a community where they produce PVC, that PVC is polyvinyl chloride. It's, it's, you know, the end product of vinyl chloride. So if you live in an area where you have a factory that is producing PVC, or you live near a factory that is using vinyl chloride, there could be elevated levels of vinyl chloride in your air. So the question becomes, okay, if you have, if, and again, this doesn't happen, 
because there are no metabolites specific only to vinyl chloride. But if you, ha if that happened, if, if there was a metabolite that was very specific to vinyl chloride and it was in your blood or in your urine, then the questions I would be asking is, are you a smoker? Are you around smokers? Do you work at a bar? Do you work in a factory? And then from there, I'm going to start asking additional questions, right? So are you around smokers, right? Do you work at a cigar bar? Do you smoke? Does anyone in your family smoke, right? So all these questions, do your neighbors smoke? Do you, you know, all these different questions to try to ascertain what are all the different sources of vinyl chloride. Now, the other thing that I would do, you know, in the case of East Palestine, Ohio, is I would also be measuring using a uh, air sampler how much vinyl chloride is in the air. Now, according to the EPA, the levels of vinyl chloride in the air are quite small. So more than likely, and below the toxic level. So it is possible that the levels are not toxic, but high enough for this person to be uh, exposed to vinyl chloride through the air or through some of these other mechanisms. And they have this vinyl chloride being metabolized. Now, let me say this again. Just because you detect it doesn't mean it's toxic. And this goes back to the thing I like to say a lot, which is there are these merchants of fear who are trying to train people to, to reflexively think that if it can be measured, it is toxic. That is not true. It is demonstrably untrue. Yet, yet, these merchants of fear want you to believe it. So they want you to believe that if you have this breakdown product of vinyl chloride in your blood or in your urine, guess what? You've got toxicity. That's just not the case. There are safe levels. What we need to be focused on is, number one, we need to be focused on the mixtures issue. But number two, we need to be focused on the bigger picture, which is, is this causal? Is this happening at a level that is high enough to cause toxicity, right? Because we need to be above that threshold. Even in a mixture situation, we have to be above that threshold. Just because you can detect a breakdown product of vinyl chloride in your blood or urine does not mean that you've got some kind of toxicity going on in your body, all right? Let me say that again. Just because we can measure it, it doesn't mean that it's actually toxic. Why is that? Well, it's an interesting thing. We are getting so much better at measuring chemicals in our blood, in our urine, in our air, in our soil, in our water than we ever have been before. Chemists and physicists are doing an amazing job of creating new measurement techniques and new technologies to measure chemicals at lower and lower and lower concentrations. So now what's happening is we are starting to find chemicals that we didn't even know were in the environment. We're finding them now. But people, and, and you know, the merchants of fear want you to believe that if we can measure it, it's toxic. And that's not true. Let me give you a quick story. So I was, I, I have this talk a lot with people. There are people who like to say there is no safe level of ozone. None. Zero. 
you have to have zero ozone to be safe. And so the first question I like to bring back to him, okay, let's, let's, let's talk about this like scientists. If someone is going to say that there is no safe level of ozone, what they are literally saying is that one atom of ozone is toxic. Or sorry, one molecule. I shouldn't say that. One molecule of ozone is toxic because ozone is three oxygen atoms connected together. So it's a molecule. One molecule of ozone is toxic. And it, that just, it doesn't play that way. That's not how ozone works. If you were to inhale one molecule of ozone, the first thing that would happen is the mucus in your nose and in your respiratory tract at some point, that molecule is going to hit that mucus and it's going to get deactivated. Honest, that's exactly what's going to happen. One molecule is not going to do anything. One molecule of lead is not going to lower the IQ of anyone. It is not going to result in any kind of toxicity. One molecule. So when people say there's no safe level for lead, that's untrue. And again, that goes back to the whole speaking in absolutes thing. When you speak in absolutes, you're probably going to be false. One molecule of lead is not toxic. Right? Or one atom, I should say. In this case, lead is an atom. So it'd be one atom of lead is not toxic. Okay? One atom of lead, not toxic. It's not going to do anything. All right? So what do I want you to remember? Just because we can measure it, that doesn't mean it's toxic, number one. Number two, especially with respect to the breakdown products of vinyl chloride, those metabolites, we call them metabolites, breakdown products, metabolites, same thing. Those metabolites of vinyl chloride are also formed by lots of other things. So I can't take the levels of the breakdown products associated with vinyl chloride in your blood and then back calculate a vinyl chloride level because they come from multiple sources. Okay. The next thing I need you to remember is that in order to do some kind of causal analysis to say that it is the vinyl chloride from the train derailment, we have to account for all of your other sources of vinyl chloride. If you have any other sources of vinyl chloride, we need to quantify those. So the bottom line is this, just because you have it in your body doesn't mean it's toxic. Just because you have the metabolites in your body doesn't mean it's toxic. Now, I'm not trying to say that people aren't having health episodes. They very well may be having health episodes. And I've already addressed the fact that there's, there's mixtures concerns that I have with respect to this. But what I want people to realize is from, you know, and I'm, I'm a toxicology investigator, right? This is what I do for a living. I go out and I talk to people and I find out, can we assign the you know causation of your health effects due to exposure to some chemical? And can we associate with a particular source, right? So if I were going through East Palestine today, here we are, you know, in May, 2023, and somebody wants to say to me, you know, I got these uh, vinyl chloride breakdown products in my blood and it's due to the train derailment. That's, that's going to be hard to prove at this point. 
you know, uh, and the article I'm looking at, I'm looking at the uh, dateline. It's uh, April 28th. That's going to be pretty hard to prove this many months out from the derailment. There are far more plausible sources of vinyl chloride based on the information we're getting from EPA. And so I'll leave it at that. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Again, this was about biomarkers, so things that we can measure in your blood. And, you know, I think if there's interest, I might do some more talking about biomarkers because it comes up a lot. It comes up a lot in toxicology, obviously, uh, because we're, we're, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to ascertain what's going on in your body, uh, how the different organs in your body are reacting. And, you know, they're pretty good biomarkers for that. And there are some biomarkers that aren't so good. So it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about. And it, like I said, it does come up a lot. Um, anyway, uh, subscribe. I was just about to say subscribe and say, if you can tell I've been on Amazon lately, uh, subscribe to the podcast, let your friends know, let your neighbors know, tell your dog trainers, whoever else you have in your life that might want to know that might uh, benefit from this type of information. If you have uh, ideas for things that I should talk about, you can uh, shoot me an email. Uh, You can find me if you Google me. Um, I'm Lyle Bragoon, and this is the Critical Science Podcast. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.